on the most fundamental question of all, the structural reform of the Fed, you need more people on the boards of regional reserve banks who are not bankers. You need people from labor. You need people from academia. You need uh, uh, people who are critics of the Fed being on the boards of, uh, of local Fed banks. And this is how Janet Yellen came to prominence. Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And we are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Robert Kuttner, who is co-founder and co-editor of The American Prospect and professor at Brandeis University's Heller School. He is an author of 12 books, and his latest book is called The Stakes, 2020 and the Survival of American Democracy. He was a founder of the Economic Policy Institute and serves on its board and executive committee. His previous positions have included national staff writer and columnist on the Washington Post, chief investigator of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, executive director of President Carter's National Commission on Neighborhoods, and economics editor of the New Republic. Robert, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks for having me. So what did you think about President Biden's 100-day speech to Congress last night? Really extraordinary. Uh, I mean, for someone like me, you, you almost feel like like Rip Van Winkle, and that understates it. Uh, and I'm mixing the metaphor here. But it's as if the Democratic Party uh, went into a slumber for 40 or 50 years and finally woke up after four presidents uh, where the Democrats got into bed with Wall Street, got into bed with neoliberals, forgot the importance of the labor movement, um, forgot the importance of affirmative government, uh, delivering for regular people. And due to a series of historic accidents, uh, Joe Biden, of all people, becomes the instruments of the Democrats, becomes the instrument, rather, of the Democrats recovering their soul. Who would have thunk it? I mean, I, in the, in, in the last chapter of the stakes, predicting that the Democrats could actually win with a program like this, but imagining that it might be Elizabeth Warren rather than Joe Biden, you know, I sketched out a program that, that maybe they read it, I don't know, that wasn't all that different from what Biden's proposing, but to have lived to see them actually do it after all these years in the wilderness is just stunning. And lo and behold, it turns out to be good politics, turns out to be popular. Uh, we've, we've recovered, you know, tax and spend, We've recovered, regulate, we've recovered, let's remember the labor movement. And it's just, it's a stunning moment. And uh, I was imagining what it was like last night to be Joe Manchin. And maybe even Joe Manchin listened to this and said, gee, some of this actually might be pretty good for West Virginia. So we're gonna have to wait and see how much of this he actually gets through Congress. But it's just a, a remarkable turn of events and a very hopeful one. Yeah, the, the idea of optimism. I mean, it's been such a pessimistic state uh, for 40 years of my entire life growing up in the Reagan arena. And then the last 20 years of war on terror, the Iraq invasion, and the last five years have just completely traumatized and, and created so much pessimism around the world. And so- But, but you know, yeah. what, what's traumatized and what what's traumatized me and made me pessimistic, uh, even though I'm kind of characterologically optimistic, is watching Bill Clinton uh, out Reagan Reagan on trashing government and getting into bed with Wall Street and watching Barack Obama blow a moment that could have been a Roosevelt moment. And here comes Joe Biden of all people. So uh, it's nice to have some hope. 
Yeah, and I'm always remember uh, Obama saying that he was more of a Reagan Republican, and that you know just makes me want to tear out my hair. So, <laughs> uh, so one of the things he did talk about was over six trillion dollars of proposed spending, and in some ways it is almost a laundry list. And you wrote a piece earlier this month titled "Making Industrial Policy Work." where, quote, President Biden's largest large-scale initiative, the American Jobs Plan, is more like a progressive to-do list with details to be filled in. So I guess, could we begin by talking about what is an industrial policy and why does America need one? Because th there has been no talk of an industrial policy for most of the last four decades. If you go back and look at Biden's speech, what Biden did was to embrace what I would call an affirmative economic nationalism, make it in America, which just sent chills down my spine because you know, the official ideology of the last three democratic presidents has been this kind of Wall Street oriented globalism where uh, the financial industry makes a ton of money because they get a piece of the action and we just write off manufacturing. So to connect green transition to infrastructure to jobs, to making it in America, that's just stunning. Now, if you're gonna make it in America, you have to have some kind of coherent strategy for doing that, that connects trade policy to public investment, to uh, DARPA, and he embraces DARPA uh, in his speech, and he calls for NIH to have something like DARPA, um, where you have government incubating the science and then incubating the technology and then making sure that the technology leads to jobs in the United States. Now, the, the ordinary name for that before it became a dirty word is industrial policy. So Biden is dusting this off, picking it up and breathing some life into it and defining it. And the, 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 the really interesting question uh, is exactly how institutionally uh, you're gonna make this happen. I mean, obviously one big piece of it is trade policy. Uh, and he talked about, you know, buy America. And he mentioned the fact that you can invoke that. It's, a, it's legislation from the 1930s uh, where, where public funds are used for infrastructure, taxpayer money. You don't even have to apologize to the World Trade Organization. You're, you're, you're just gonna get rid of all the waivers that the past several administrations have put into place where making it in Germany gets defined as tantamount to making it in America because we have trade deals with Germany. Well, it turns out you don't have to do that. And this is astonishing. And, and it's fairly rarefied, technical, wonky stuff. Progressives have been pushing Democrats to do this for decades, and Biden's the first one who's taking this seriously. So to answer your question, you need a mechanism to have an industrial policy to sort all of this stuff out. For instance, um, you can't make everything in America, but you want to prioritize what it is important to make in America. You need some process for setting those goals. You need some process for figuring out how that interfaces with trade policy. There's a, there's a very nice bill floating around that Marcy Kaptur, progressive congressman from Ohio, came up with, uh, and then she got Amy Klobuchar to co-sponsor in the Senate. This would create an office in the White House to coordinate industrial policy for the whole government. I have no idea whether whether Biden is uh, receptive to that. Um, and you know, they just uh, they just designated 
a deputy OMB director to be in charge of making it in America. Um, she's uh, the, the, the former uh, trade person for the AFL-CIO. So it's astonishing both what they're doing and who they're appointing. And taking a step back, I do want to put a spotlight on Wall Street because so much money has been made on the runaway shop, the race to the bottom, where you can get cheaper labor markets, less environmental regulation, and then re-import a lot of the manufactured goods back into the United States without our, without our uh, sectors being able to compete because we don't have an actual tariff that kind of allows a parity price. And then they can also create assembly plants, which isn't actually manufacturing. Right. Say it's made in America, which it's actually the value added is in the manufacturing. The assembly is kind of the, the last uh, step on, on the process. So that's another aspect where Wall Street's making, they're looking at you know, a 4% return over 20 years. That's not good enough. I can make a lot more money if on a very volatile trading uh, in foreign exchange and um, just gaming the system in that way. So I, I think a big part of the, an industrial policy is trying to get the people who are interested in producing here and get them to fight against Wall Street. And because the industrial manufacturing base, they can be extremely reactionary and right wing as well. But if you can get them to fight against Wall Street, their goal is also to have lower interest rates, long-term investment, infrastructure, and things like that. What's the difference between the infrastructure bill and industrial policy as well, just to clarify that? Well, the, the infrastructure bill is an opportunity to have an industrial policy. Uh, if you are gonna rebuild everything from uh, rail to waters and sewers to have a green infrastructure so that you can have clean electricity. Um, then the question is, how much of that stuff do you make? How much of that stuff do you buy and import? And what does it take to recreate the capacity to really manufacture and not just do final assembly of the United States? So uh, again, uh, Biden in the speech mentions wind, wind turbines. We could make those in the United States. Right now, uh, most of the solar panels that we use as we convert to solar, those are produced in China. And the raw materials that go into the solar panels are produced in China. So to take back that production capacity, you'd probably have to spend a little more money in the short run, but in the long run, you'd make it up by bringing all of that stuff back home and staying in the game and learning how to, learning how to be at the forefront of the technology. So then you get to manufacture it here and not just install it here. Well, you multiply that times 50 industries. Uh, those decisions are gonna to have to be sorted out. Uh, you know, we don't wanna be autarkic, which is a fancy word for making every single thing in the United States. Although we did that virtually during World War II and it worked out just fine. But, you know, the point is not to seal up the borders and have no trade. The point is to be strategic in what you think there's either a national security interest or a national economic interest in making it at home. And boy, that is such good politics. I mean, I, I was just imagining Trump gnashing his teeth because basically uh, Biden was taking the, the, the non-racist part of Trump's economic message and making it real. Whereas with Trump, it was nothing but cheap symbolism. So Biden is taking economic nationalism and he's saying, here's how, I'm going to do, here's how I'm going to carry this out in a way that actually creates good jobs for people, spelling it out in great detail. And um, I'm imagining that 
you know, you could win over some uh, working class voters who were not totally infatuated with Trump, but but saw Trump delivering more than Democrats had delivered recently. Yeah, and at least rhetorically, you know, Trump went to the left on trade and jobs and things like that, even though he was obviously um, fake on everything when you actually look at his record as a businessman. And I think it's also important to acknowledge the growth of China's industrial base as well. I wish US politicians would go to China and see the fact that there's been over 30,000 kilometers of high-speed rail built in the last 15 years. Uh, you have a coal plant coming online every three months. I'm not, I don't think we should use coal technology, but the fact is that their electricity costs are gonna be going down, their transportation costs are going down. And if you wanna compete in a capital goods market against China, you're going to need a very low price of energy, uh, low price of transportation, communication, and a, and a highly trained workforce. Well, you know, the, the, the fact that China is a genuine threat, a national security threat, uh, an economic threat, again, that gives Biden the basis for being an economic nationalist in the, in the best sense of the word. And again, um, he can steal a lot of the clothes that, that Trump, uh, you know, put on, even though it was totally fake because he never followed through on any of it. But uh, at the level of rhetoric and at the level of symbol, it was good politics for Trump. And by making it real uh, and by doing it without the racist part, uh, it's, it's, it's even better politics for Joe Biden. Well, I'd like to spend the second half of this conversation focusing on who is going to pay for it. There's always a question of who's going to pay for it. And it usually is centered around fiscal policy based on taxation and spending. And in March of this year, you were the keynote speaker for an event with the Living New Deal titled From the Original New Deal to the Green New Deal. And I was very encouraged by how you focused on the potential role of the Federal Reserve. Could you talk about how FDR used the Fed in the original New Deal? Well, okay. So, um, and, and I want to connect the Fed and the uh, Reconstruction Finance Corporation because both are uses of, of what we can call public capital. Um, and the Fed was really more important in the war than it was in the New Deal because basically for the, for the period of the war, World War II, and about seven years afterwards, there was a deal between the Treasury and the Fed that uh, the rate on government bonds would be pegged at two and a quarter percent in most cases. And uh, Treasury could sell whatever bonds it needed to finance the war and the Fed would just buy them. Well, this was sort of rediscovered and reinvented and uh, renamed with the anodyne term quantitative easing, which, which is another word for just, you know, <laughs> uh, create as much, create, uh, sell, sell us, borrow as much money as you need, we'll buy the paper. And that's what, that's what the Fed did during the war. The Fed, Fed really did not do this in the depression. I mean, the, the, the deficits in the depression, you know, were five or 6% of GDP, not big enough to get us out of the great depression, but you did have the reconstruction finance corporation, which was the other great use of public capital in the thirties and even more so during the war. And, um, the RFC was very serious about the proposition that if we are going to provide money, uh, we're going to go on your board and uh, we're going to tell you how much you can pay your CEO. 
And uh, so I think both institutions are worth invoking. The, the other huge change is that again, ever since Clinton, uh, Democrats have decided that the way to the hearts of voters is to be uh, fiscal hawks. This was bad policy, it was worse politics. Uh, you had all these Wall Street Democrats who cared more about balancing the budget than they cared about uh, serving regular people or getting out of the, the Great Recession. And um, uh, Biden has shaken loose of that. So one way this is gonna be financed is we're gonna borrow money. And the funny thing is that even though the deficit hawks are screaming bloody murder, if, if you look at what the Congressional Budget Office is actually projecting, and they, they really have a terrible record when, when you get out more than about six months uh, of, 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 of making accurate projections, but even the CBO, which is very hawkish, very conservative, says that um, the debt to GDP ratio, because of all of the economic growth that all of this borrowing is gonna stimulate, it's gonna peak at maybe 105% of GDP that's just not that big a deal. It's, it, it's well below the World War II peak. So some of it you're gonna do by borrowing. I would argue you could do even more of it by borrowing. You could have 50 year infrastructure bonds that uh, treasury could issue or a green development bank could issue and the Fed could buy. And the other thing they're gonna do is they're gonna tax rich people. I mean, Biden made no bones about that. You know, If you wanna be a billionaire, God bless you, but we're gonna make you pay your taxes. And that's such good politics. So uh, I, I think having a cutoff where he says nobody with an income under $400,000 a year is going to have a tax increase. And in fact, you're going to have a tax cut in the form of the refundable tax credit for kids, which goes to 98.5% of American kids. So he's cutting taxes for people under 400000 He's raising taxes for people over 400,000, especially on the top one-tenth of 1%. 1 and there is so much money left on the table in the form of very rich people evading their taxes, where if you put more money into the IRS to restore its capacity to audit, which again, Biden was very explicit about in his, in his great speech, you know, you can get hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue to pay for all of this stuff uh, without increasing tax rates on anybody. And the, the IRS chief, I think last week was saying potentially up to a trillion dollars a year is left on the table because we don't have an enforcement mechanism that's been gutted in the IRS. And that may be a little bit optimistic, but uh, I mean, there was, a, there was a paper by Natasha Sarin that put the figure uh, with Larry Summers of all people, uh, the, for, done for the National Bureau of Economic Research that put the figure at a uh, hundred billion a year. But I mean, even so, that's serious money because when you when you hear these figures thrown around, 1.9 trillion, 2.2 trillion, those are 10-year figures. So even if you get only um, 100 billion a year, that's a trillion dollars uh, over over 10 years. That's about a, a fifth of what what Biden needs for his entire program. And if uh, Reddick, the IRS commissioner, is closer to the truth, then it's more like two or three trillion. So um, you know, make the rich guy pay. That's good politics. Uh, cut taxes for people under $400,000. That's good politics. And, and I just hope that the, the popularity of the program continues to translate into popularity for Biden personally, because that's what's going to scare the Republicans. 
Uh, right now, the the spread between Biden's uh, this is before the speech, and I'm very eager to see what the polls look like post speech. So right now, the spread is only about 10 points. The spread between his approval rating and his disapproval rating, based on the policies and the popularity of the policies, it really ought to be more like 20 or 30 points. It, it, it's the kind of spread that Obama enjoyed in his first six months, and I think we're going to see that widen. Uh, we're going to see more. Uh, voters who are not hardcore Trump voters saying that they approve of Biden's performance and you're going to find the disapproval, you know, down around 30 percent, which is sort of the hardcore Trump base. And that's why things like and, I, and almost like an infrastructure will create jobs. Those are material gains. And Biden has the opportunity if he can get these bills passed and get the money in the system to start working by 2022 to actually pick up seats, uh, which is very unusual. Um, I do wanna just kind of uh, highlight what you mentioned earlier about the debt and the idea that you can have austerity and you can cut the, the debt and, or you can cut services is actually contracts the economy. The only way to get out of it, you have to grow the entire economy and that takes investment and it takes a return on investment. And I think Caltech even issued a uh, hundred year bonds so the, the money gets paid, and if it's at 2% or 1% even, um, you're, you're going to have that return on investment, as we saw in the Apollo program and so many other investments. I do want to also um, go back to the Fed. Uh, Wall Street on Parade has done some tremendous work in highlighting the fact that back in uh, September, October 2019, the Federal Reserve opened up their repo or repurchase overnight window to Wall Street banks. And by the end of 2019, before COVID even really began to affect the economy, the Fed guaranteed $2.2 trillion repurchase agreement of, of Wall Street banks. This is almost not talked about. The Wall Street system of banking is incredibly toxic. It's almost zombified at this point. And I think by March of 2020, the, the Federal Reserve had allocated over six or $7 trillion just to Wall Street banks. So I, I think Americans are very ignorant about the, the, the role Wall Street's playing. Why are US politicians so quiet? I, I also have heard some anecdotes where Warren talked about using the Federal Reserve to finance the student loan debt to 0%, and then she backed away from it. So I'm sure there's an incredible lobby, but what, what is your impression of just why so many politicians are hesitant to touch this third rail, the so-called independent, most powerful bank in the world. You talk about the Fed? You talk the about Federal Reserve, yeah, the Federal Reserve. Um, I would be more eager to have uh, Democratic politicians really take on the entire Wall Street business model, to go back to something like what we had in the 30 years after the New Deal, where you know, commercial banking was very, very highly regulated and um, you couldn't speculate with commercial banking. And if you wanted to speculate, you could be an investment banker, but you're on your own. The government's not going to bail you out. And that system worked just beautifully. And then, of course, we got this whole orgy of deregulation and, and ending with the end of Glass-Steagall and derivatives and uh, the collapse of 2008. So I would like to see a lot more energy on the progressive side go into drastic simplification of the American financial system, which should have been done in the aftermath of the collapse was not done. And Biden is not doing this now because he can only do so many things at once. 
So if he can, and it's very complicated. So if you can do infrastructure and jobs and human infrastructure and all that stuff, which he explained eloquently and simply in his speech and get some public support for that, then maybe you can do the more complicated structural stuff where it, it's just harder because there are so many Democrats who are in bed with Wall Street. It's even harder to get that through Congress than it is to get a jobs and infrastructure program. Now, I'm not ducking your question about the Fed. Um, I, I think um, we have made a little bit of headway in the sense that um, partly because Jay Powell, the chair, would like to be reappointed. Um, the Fed is no longer the force for austerity economics that it used to be. I mean, if you look at where Clinton and Greenspan were in 1993, uh, Greenspan's price for cutting interest rates was that Clinton had to balance the budget. Now, you, you, you almost have the Fed on the opposite side of that argument now. Powell is basically saying, please, Congress, spend a ton of money because we can't do it entirely with monetary policy. So that's 180 degree reversal in the Fed's traditional position on austerity. On financial regulation, Fed is still lousy. Fed has a long way to go. It's one of several financial regulators. Uh, Yellen at the Treasury, I think, uh, will be somewhat better and will push um, the, the, the other bank regulators, including the Fed, uh, into a more aggressive position. But on the most fundamental question of all, the structural reform of the Fed, you know, as was originally intended, you need more people on the boards of regional reserve banks who are not bankers. You need people from labor. You need people from academia. You need uh, uh, people who are critics of the Fed being on the boards of, uh, of local Fed banks. And this is how Janet Yellen came to prominence. I mean, she was on the board of uh, the, um, the San Francisco Fed. And so you, you have to democratize them at the level of the regional reserve banks. Um, and you have to appoint people to the board of governors who have a somewhat different viewpoint than the typical Fed governor in the past. And then maybe slowly, like turning around a battleship, you, you can change the mentality of the institution. And it's just, it's just fortunate that Powell, as a Republican, who really would like to be reappointed is just completely sucking up to, to Biden uh, by being a real fiscal dove and, and accommodating all of this spending without raising interest rates. So whether they're, whether they're giving favoritism to banks, and of course they are, that's a separate question. But it seems to me you reform that by reforming the banking system more than you do by reforming the Fed. So we're about out of time. And just in closing, where do you see opportunity and hope in 2021 and beyond? Well, I think Biden's going to have a tremendous headwind, right? I mean, tailwind. I mean, Obama becomes president with, with headwinds. Uh, Biden becomes president with economic tailwinds. He's contributing to those tailwinds. He's going to have a very robust recovery. And ordinary people are going to benefit from all of this spending and all of this job creation. I think the economy is going to be in very nice shape by the end of the year, which, which sets the stage, assuming the Republicans don't steal it, which they may, but it does set the stage, as you alluded to, for Democrats actually picking up seats in both the House and the Senate in, in, in 2022. So you've got two different things going on here. 
you've got whether we get our democracy back and you've got how successful is Biden's economic program. I think the economic program, even if he only gets half of it, is going to be very successful. The tougher question is whether the Republicans are going to succeed with all this voter suppression and then whether the Democrats can do enough voter mobilization as they did in the 2018 midterms to, to uh, more than compensate for the voter suppression. So Robert Kuttner, thank you so much for your time. And uh, how can people follow your work and where should they buy your books? Uh, well, they should go to prospect.org. Uh, you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter, three, three times a week newsletter on prospect.org. Uh, the book, uh, your independent bookstore of your choice or God forbid Amazon, it's called The Stakes 2020 and the Survival of American Democracy. And thank you for the plug. And thanks for all you're doing. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for yours.